the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK in a changing Europe. Hello and welcome to another Brexit Breakdown podcast. I'm James Miller, journalist, author, man on a mission to find out more about Brexit. Well, we've Brexited now, so I guess we're all going to find out what it really means. And that is why the UK and a changing Europe have just published a new report called What Next? came out on Tuesday, February the 4th. You can find it on their website. And after the official launch, I sat down with three of their senior fellows who contributed to the report to talk about what's in it and indeed what is next. Uh, So we had David Bailey from Birmingham University. He's an expert in manufacturing. Uh, Sarah Hall from Nottingham University. She's an expert in financial services. And Dr. Katie Hayward of Queen's University, Belfast, who of course has been on before when we were pondering Northern Ireland with Jonathan Powell back in the autumn. They all had interesting things to say about their specific specialities, but also about uh, the process in general that we're all uh, heading into over the next uh, 11 months and indeed the whole of the future. So uh, Brexit, what's next? Here we go. First of all, are you happy with the sequencing in the report Katie Northern Ireland right at the back we've been talking about nothing but Northern <laughs> Ireland for the last there. two years what's that about yes and I I mean my point would be Northern Ireland continues to be really important um, although people are tired of it I'm sure is actually going to be right at the forefront of what the EU is looking at when it comes to uh, some of the negotiations that are going to be had I mean is it obviously manufacturing is, is at the front is the, the first one that you come to in the, in the report is that because that's going to be the main thing on the, the menu for the negotiations to come? Well, Brexit is done in the sense we've, we've left the EU, but it's not done in the sense we've got all of these various issues, whether it's fisheries or services or manufacturing, to deal with. So there's a whole load of things that we've now got to sort out, which is why this year is going to be so interesting. That's what the report is flagging up. Um, but, you know, I don't... There's going to be a whole load of priorities going forwards and the government is going to have to deal with them on multiple fronts. Manufacturing is particularly important, I think, because of the amount of trade that's done with the EU. But that doesn't negate the importance of services, given that that is such an important part of the economy. And I think on services, in a way, less has been debated publicly so far, because... Mm. When you think of disruption in manufacturing, you think of lorries lined up by Dover. Mm. When you think of disruption in services, it's not as intuitively obvious, but it still matters. We have a trade surplus in services with the EU of £28 As the very insightful caller to Jeremy Vine said yesterday, you can't eat money. There you go. That's 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 got to be the mantra going forward, isn't it? Yeah, can't eat money, which is, you know, true, but also, you know, a hat is not a tree. It doesn't really help. Um... Yeah, well done. You've called your report Brexit, what next, even though Brexit is not a word anymore. Come on, did you not get the memo? After Friday, it's it's not a word? No, I'm not talking about Brexit anymore. It's not a word. That's what the Prime Minister says. It doesn't exist anymore. It's not going away. There's lots lots to discuss and lots that need to be decided on over the next year. And from a business point of view, they want to see clarity over that because they don't know what the trading relationships will be at the end of the year. So the government may not talk about Brexit, but in the real world, people are. So, I mean, you know, it's called What Next? Obviously, it's a lovely 30-something page report. Um, But in a few words, what is next? Just negotiations. That's that's the word, isn't it? 
And if so, why does that matter to me? I'm not going to notice anything for the next 11 months, am I? So what is being negotiated will fundamentally affect daily life in the UK um, come 1st of January next year, a few years by then. So things that we've taken for granted um, will no longer be there. And the whole economic in particular, but legal and political environment for the UK will have changed. What's different in this round of negotiations compared to the Brexit negotiations per se is actually there'll be less almost day-to-day coverage of these negotiations because mm. they'll be behind closed doors. We'll have much less of a chance to scrutinise them. It'll be a different type of negotiation because there's quite a lot to lose. And of course we know from right from the very outset that the UK and EU are setting their red lines just as bluntly as they were uh, for the previous, for the withdrawal negotiations. Um, and there will be compromises and they will have to sell those compromises. Um, so it's these negotiations are absolutely crucial, but we won't be able to track them, I think, in such detail as we have in the previous few years. So is that kind of the point of the report to some extent, is to say, pay attention now because this stuff you're not going to know about it, but you're going to know about it in 12 months' time. Yeah, absolutely, and and the and the report covers all the essentials when it's um, noting those areas that are going to be um, possibly transformed. And, you know, we may, as Katie was saying, we may not kind of notice, but, you know, there is, there is an impact in the real world. So the uncertainty for business, for example, means that business is unlikely to invest or the, recovery, uh, the investment won't recover in the way that we might hope for because they, we're not going to get these issues resolved until the back end of the year, if they are resolved then. As you say, the report covers all the, the vital areas. You come first in the report on manufacturing, David. Yeah. Is that because it is particularly important? I mean, you know, there's been a lot of focus on uh, cars in particular when we talk about manufacturing. You know, how big a deal is manufacturing actually in the economy? Well, I think we underrate it. So it still employs about 2.7 million people. On average, they earn decent money as well. You know, the average kind of manufacturing salary is over £30,000, well above the median income. Contributes about directly about 11% of the economy in terms of gross value added. But it's really important for exports, 45% of total exports, 70% of business research and development, and about 13% of business investment. So it's really important for the economy. That is actually an understatement, because when you factor in services that are linked to manufacturing, it's a much bigger share. So you look at the West Midlands. Formally, manufacturing is about 12% of the economy. Now, that isn't right. You just walk around the West Midlands, you know that isn't right. When you add in services that are linked to manufacturing, depend on it, it's about a third of the economy. Now, that's not perfectly right, but it's roughly right. It's better to be roughly right than absolutely wrong, as Keynes once said. So we undervalue, I think, manufacturing. The other point is because we've neglected it too much, manufacturing is important in terms of investment and improvements in productivity. So because we've not seen investment in manufacturing that's part of the reason why we've seen such a productivity slowdown in recent years so it's a important part of the economy and it's one we've neglected i think for too long um what do we make when we talk about cars you talk about manufacturing and i can see the little picture of a factory that used to be in my geography textbook mm. but i don't actually see any factories like that in real life anymore um you know well, what, come, what are we talking to, about come to talking? birmingham and the west midlands you'll see lots of them really? so they're little still pointy roofs the, and, and chimneys corrugated roofs yeah oh, but okay. they t- the modern manufacturing tends to be much bigger uh often on the edge of cities uh, you know you go inside their spotless factories mm. so it's still there and it's still important but it may not be the way that historically it's been seen the biggest sector actually is food and drink we don't tend to regard that as manufacturing because 
partly from a government point of view, that's under responsibility of agriculture. So mm. we don't have an industrial strategy for it. But that is actually the biggest manufacturing sector. But when we think of manufacturing, we often think of those sectors like auto- automotive, aerospace, pharmaceuticals, where actually we are still world class in certain parts of those sectors. They're an important driver in the economy in terms of research and development and exports, and they provide lots of good quality jobs. So it feels to me like manufacturing sort of there's, there's a, a positive and a negative here, um, well, like so many things in Brexit. Let's look at the positive. You're saying that, that manufacturing has historically or, or recently lacked investment. So Brexit, does that provide an opportunity to turn that around? Well, part of the problem with Brexit has been the uncertainty has meant that companies have held off on investment. So that's been a problem. I think that will continue this year. Boris Johnson talked about how there would be a you know, a bounce back in investment this year, given that Brexit was done. Well, the report is saying basically it isn't done and there's still a whole load of issues to sort out. So I don't think we're going to see a bounce back in investment in the immediate future. What's really important for manufacturing is that some of the key things that they are concerned about are nailed down this year. The risk is at the end of 2020, we end up essentially with no trade deal, in which case we could face tariff barriers and all sorts of other barriers to trade, which would have a negative impact. But is there an opportunity to make things better in the simplest possible way? I think there's always an opportunity to make things better. That, in, in a sense, that, de- that depends, as has been referred to in some of the other UK Changing Europe reports, on whether there's a kind of policy reset moment. You know, do we want more of an activist industrial policy? Do we want to embrace opportunities, say, around transitioning manufacturing towards some of the green technologies of the future, like electric cars? We're expected to hear today Boris Johnson talking about the, the pulling forward the target for banning petrol and diesel engines to 2035. Mm. Now, OK, if we want to go electric in a big way, we're going to have to line up policies to make that happen. Taxes, subsidies, encouraging people into electric cars, infrastructure. So, yes, there are opportunities. But if we don't have so much of an automotive industry left to transition, that's going to be a lot more difficult. We talked about manufacturing, but absolutely, we keep hearing about services over the recent years. And as I mentioned, obviously, services are less tangible. But financial services, they are a big deal in the Brexit negotiations, right? Yeah. So um, services are about um, 46% of UK um, exports. And we have a trade surplus in services. And within that, one of the areas where the UK has particular expertise is around financial services. London is a leading financial centre and is essentially Europe's financial centre currently. Do we have expertise or do we have just volume of value, if you like? Because presumably that makes a difference to the negotiations because if we've got expertise and that's something you could negotiate with, if it just so happens that London has loads of trading going on, then you could presumably move it elsewhere if you're so inclined. So what we know about financial services is that to an extent it is quite sticky in terms of its mobility and there's a a range of reasons why the UK is competitive in financial services. That ranges from things like the education system and the ways in which that facilitates recruitment of financiers to really mundane things like where we're located on the planet. So if you're sitting in London, you can do trade with New York and Tokyo in a way that you just can't because of the time zone if you're based in Singapore, for example. Mm. That seems bizarre that financial services are sticky. Because the whole point, isn't it, that, you know, globalisation, there's money everywhere, you can, you know, business never sleeps and all that sort of stuff, and you can be anywhere. But actually, what? Is it just because bankers are like the rest of us and they just like living in London? I mean, you joke, but that is actually one of the main reasons. um, If you go back to um, discussions about whether um, 
the UK would join the euro. And at that point, there were questions about whether Frankfurt would outcompete London as a financial centre. But if you spoke to financiers at the time, as I did, some of them were saying, you know, have you ever been to Frankfurt? You know, there's part of the kind of um, wider kind of uh, cultural and lifestyle effects of London that attracts um, financial workers. And there's also... um, the cluster of financial and legal and accountancy expertise in London means that um, innovation rates typically tend to be higher in terms of financial services in those kinds of clusters than in, in smaller ones. So I think actually that's why you're seeing, you know, some of the areas where the UK is most competitive economically is actually at exactly the intersection between David's work on manufacturing and finance, where those two things come together around, for example, financing of vehicles, leasing, those kinds of things, the UK's developed real leadership in. I mean, that is sort of strangely fascinating, isn't it? In that when it comes to negotiations, will they sit and look at the stuff you've just mentioned, of services, manufacturing, you know, the stuff on the ledger, if you like, or do they have to take into account the human beings? You know, it's all very well sitting doing a, a negotiation and going, well, ha, we're going to take all the business down to them. But if all the bankers are going to go, well, we're not going to have to them. Um, then that, what, what comes when you're sitting around a negotiating table? Which one do they have to, I presume they have to take everything into account, right? So I think there's two things on that. The first is in terms of the mobility of people, I think that will be quite a lagging indicator in terms of the impact of the Brexit process on London. Because if you're a firm, you're not going to relocate people until you're absolutely certain that that's what you need to do. It will almost be the last thing you relocate because of all the kind of um, personal costs that people won't want to pay to move. When you're sitting in the negotiations, um, I think then, you know, um, financial institutions will act in their own interests. So if they can't access um, the single market from London, it would, as a corporate strategy, make sense to open a presence within the single market, in certainly this year, possibly next year. Are you talking about passporting? I is that am... what basically being able to access the single market? Is that what passporting is? Yes. So passporting um, is the kind of critical, really, piece of regulation upon which London has developed expertise vis-a-vis the rest of the EU. Passporting basically means if I'm a bank in London... I can apply for a passport to sell my services into France or Germany without having an additional office there. So what's going on with the passporting? Because this seems to be the key issue, right? Is yeah. whether London will have access to Europe or is it or is it the continent having access to London? Which way around is, is more important? So passporting works both ways. Mm. The key indication we have now, both from the political declaration and from the DAF negotiating strategy from the EU... Um, is that passporting isn't an option without single market access. And so the key regulation would then rest on equivalence, another... Right, yeah, I've got equivalence down here as well. So what's that? That is basically having the same rules, except they're not the same rules, but they're equivalent. Without passporting, you'd be then looking at equivalence. Equivalence is a decision made um, by the EU whereby it grants financial institutions in this case access to its markets if it believes that the regulatory environment in the UK is equivalent to or broadly similar to that of the EU. Right, lovely. It's all going to be equivalent because we've been in the EU for ages, right? Broadly. But 
there's a, a, a paragraph in your chapter which caught my eye, which says that the EU can just say, yeah, you're not equivalent anymore, and shut up shop if they want. So equivalence, equivalent and equivalence arrangements are wrapped with uncertainty. Um, for example, although at the start of the process it would seem logical that the UK would meet these equivalence arrangements given that the UK has been a member state, um, the EU can withdraw equivalence within 30 days and it has exercised that power just last summer with um, Switzerland. So that does lead to continued uncertainty for financial firms if you're relying on that as your basis for operating in EU. Therefore, you know, an argument could be made that given that uncertainty, would it be a better corporate strategy to simply open an office in the EU and get around this issue? So there is uh, a precedent with Switzerland. Yeah. That's the obvious read across here. Yeah. Uh, and Swiss banks seem to do all right. I mean, Switzerland is an is a read across read across in as much as it uses equivalents. The the financial services sector in Switzerland is quite different to that that we have in the UK, and I think this really brings us to the the point, the bigger question, which is what sort of financial services sector could or should the UK have? Do we want to be more like a sort of offshore financial centre of which Switzerland is one variety? Mm. Or does the UK seek to try and use finance to stimulate regional growth, to foster regional investment in the ways that David's been talking about? Yeah, I mean, I suppose you come back to this issue of opportunities. Um, is there an opportunity? Because, again, as you say in the, the, the report, and also as is to some extent perfectly obvious, all of the finance is based in London and the South East. Uh, not all of it, but the vast majority. Um, is there an opportunity to, to change that? Post-Brexit, can all the banks get sent to Leeds? I think Brexit, if it has done one thing in terms of economic policy, it has shed a stronger light on regional, persistent regional inequalities in the UK. And finance definitely has a role in that. Now, there are other financial services systems which are much more regionally based than ours. Germany would be a, a good example of this. The, the issue is that um, from a poli- policy perspective, that's not a new observation. How you then actually decentralised financial services and encourage investment in places like Newcastle that lost Northern Rock in the mm. financial crisis or Leeds that where Yorkshire banks relocated mm. um, out of the city is a, a more challenging question, I think. Right, nice nice smooth setup there because you mentioned the financial crisis. I mean, that is the million dollar question, isn't it? Is, well, why don't the bankers all just bog off, basically? Because they crashed the economy and basically caused everything that's happened over the last 10 years. I mean, there's certainly an argument that that's why we've had Brexit, is what happened in 2000 and 2008. So, you know, buy bankers, whatever. Is that fair? So I think this is part of the issue that the sectors face throughout the Brexit process, is its own um, kind of image and position within the debate. The, the sector itself is quite clear that it has an image problem. For example, it's struggling to recruit graduates in the way it used to do. They're more um, typically wanting to go and work in tech companies, for example, rather than um, graduate um, banking jobs. I think it's also partly why we haven't seen the financial lobby being as um, explicitly powerful as we did, for example, in debates about whether the UK would join the euro, where if you remember Mm. financial services was a sector was singled out for Mm. special treatment. Mm. If, If financial services suffered, we could not join the euro. It's been a very different placing of finance within the the Brexit um, negotiations. This comes back to this question of what do we want finance for? Firms will 
and staff will relocate if that's in their best interest. I think what the public policy question then is, is what we want to do with financial services and what we want to use it for. That's a big one, isn't it? Yeah. You know, that's you're getting into Jeremy Corbyn, Bernie Sanders territory there, aren't you? You know, what we're going to do with finance and all that sort of stuff. Well, they're all going to move to Belfast, aren't they? Because <laughs> Belfast is basically staying in the EU, one way or another. Fair? Um, so there are some people who said Northern Ireland has the best of both worlds from this uh, yeah. um, protocol. Um, and when they say that, they're pointing to the fact that Northern Ireland's part of the UK's internal market and also Northern Ireland has access to the single market um, for the movement of goods only. So the Irish oh. border does become more important as a barrier for the movement of services, capital and people. Oh, so the banks can't all move to Belfast. They're going to have to go to Dublin. Yes, uh, yes, exactly. Um, and, and that's certainly what some have been thinking about doing. Hi, Arnon here. Sorry to butt in, but I just wanted to say, if you like this podcast, which I'm sure you do, then please rate it wherever you get your podcasts from. You'll be doing a public service because it makes it easier for others to find us. While you're at it, go to our website, www.ukandeu.ac.uk, and sign up for our fantastic newsletter. Not only the latest on Brexit, but the latest on the best football team in the world. Every two weeks, free, in your inbox. Do it now. There has been bigger changes in Northern Ireland, perhaps, as a result of Brexit, than other parts of the UK, right? Um, Northern Ireland has felt it more already. So Northern Ireland, absolutely, it's it's in a unique position. It always has been unique, um, even at devolved level. Northern Ireland, uh, Northern Ireland's institutions are fundamentally affected by the Good Friday Agreement, which is about um, connections to Ireland, and that means that in many ways it works on an international basis anyway. North-South cooperation can be seen in those terms. So unsurprisingly, perhaps we come to looking at what Northern Ireland might look like after Brexit. Uh, after the end of transition and yes in actual fact it's sort of unusual international um, complicated distinctive status has only been confirmed but in a way that is quite worrying to many people most particularly to unionists because it's changing Northern Ireland's position within the UK internal market. You know aren't things better for Northern Ireland now than they have been because for now if you're in Northern Ireland you know what's going to happen next January. Whereas if you're in the rest of the UK, you don't. Is that fair? Uh, well, it is if you are if you trade across the Irish border and into the rest of the EU, sure. Mm. But what about trading within the UK and, and trade with GB, with Great Britain, is by far the largest market for Northern Ireland in, in value terms. Um, the reason, for many reasons why we've come to where we are, part of it is because it's easier to manage speaking very fun you know basically a sea border than than a land mm. border there are only um certain amount of entry points it's easier to know what's crossing um into northern ireland um but if we know that when you add friction for uh, moving goods across the border then it basically reduces the incentives to trade across that border mm-hmm. um and increases risk of um, smuggling and other um, criminal activities, then we realise that there is going to be a problem, that this actually needs a lot of attention uh, going forward. There's not going to be a problem, there's not going to be any checks. That's what Boris Johnson says. Nailed yeah. on, there's not going to be checks. It's all going to yeah. be lovely and smooth. Yes, and he has said this to businesses in Northern Ireland, and he said it in the House of Commons. Mm. So um, it must be and true. indeed, he said there'll be unfettered access, not just from Northern Ireland into Great Britain, which is sort of within Great Britain's capacity to offer, but also Great Britain into Northern Ireland. 
which is quite extraordinary because he, he can't really promise that at this moment uh, because what has happened with the protocol is that the UK-EU negotiations um, and the future trade relationship between the UK and EU is basically going to be mirrored in the relationship between Great Britain and Northern Ireland because effectively the Irish Sea becomes the new UK-EU border, certainly for the movement of goods. Uh, but it's going to be frictionless because that's what Boris Johnson says. Um, I mean, you know, it, it, it's, but it's, it's, isn't that weird? Because we're well, all sitting here and obviously we've all seen what he said and you more than anybody have seen what he said and presumably gone, huh? Or something more cogent than that, I should imagine. But This, this goes back to, to David's point earlier about people and especially businesses looking for certainty. Boris Johnson is saying what businesses would like to hear in Northern Ireland, indeed in businesses in Great Britain who trade into Northern Ireland. We'd like to hear that. We'd like to think well, there's no, there's going to be no problem at all. Um, certainly he's saying what unionists would like to hear. But we're way past this, the point where, well, never mind businesses, but unionists in Northern Ireland think that they can trust the Prime Minister. Some of them will say this more bluntly than others. But even the drawing up of the protocol itself um, and where that left the DUP, uh, very much out in the cold, despite their close relationship with the British government, this has led to a situation of distrust in, in the government. This is kind of traditional unionist wariness of British government, mm. most certainly, of course, nationalist um, scepticism about whatever the British government might say. But this, I think this is important. It's more than beyond Brexit. It's about um, how much the constituent parts of the UK um, can have confidence in where they stand vis-a-vis um, the state itself. Is there something slightly weird going on in Northern Ireland? Imagine that. Um, in the sense that uh, it, there's lots of really interesting stuff going in and on and around Northern Ireland. But... You'll it, have to point me to it, James. Well, but it's also... It, it is, you can extrapolate into a lot more into the bigger issues. For yeah. example, um, as you just suggested, Boris Johnson basically sold out the DUP, right? To get his deal through. Is that mm-hmm. fair? Mm-hmm. Um so does that mean he'll sell out the fishermen, the cars, the the, 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 the city? Is that does that give us an in- indication of how he might approach the next stage of negotiations? This is a really interesting point and, and I've made it right from the very beginning. What price is the UK prepared to pay for Brexit? And but in the past, you know, I would have said, is it prepared to pay the price of the union? Prepared to pay the price of peace? Um, and those questions still remain the same. And what is it prepared to pay in economic terms? Um, and actually, you know, the, the inconceivable is now conceivable. What what price is it prepared to pay in agriculture, for example? We actually we don't know where where things um, hit a sort of hit a fundamental red line um, in terms of a price that's just too much to to be paid. Um, and this is why the sort of the ideological dimensions of Brexit are as fascinating and as important as the economic, political ones. The other thing that's going on in Ireland, if you like, is the fact that this weird sort of Remain alliance has been born of, um, you know, unionists who want to remain, but more importantly, people who aren't particularly bothered about the historic mm-hmm. divisions in Northern Ireland, but are bothered about Remain. Mm-hmm. And of course, we're now seeing that translating into Scotland, where again, there seems to be at a growing uh, whatever they're going to be called, yes, independence movement, whatever they're called, mm. seem to be pulling in people courtesy of Remain. Mm-hmm. Um, are you not just sitting going, 
Look, I told you, you should have been paying attention to Northern Ireland for the last few years. <laughs> because we're I, seeing that the ripples from Northern Ireland are now very much beginning to play out, right? So, I mean, the Brexit is exposing in funny ways differences within the union and things that have been covered up for a long time because the UK internal market has been held together by the EU single market. Ex- differences are being exposed. And this goes back to Sarah's point about different, you know, regions having different experiences and different interests. Uh, the same is true very much in the rela- relationship between Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland. They have different interests in all of this. Um, one thing that is really good that's come out of Brexit is that um, all five main parties are speaking pretty much with one voice. Mm. Um, this has never, ever happened before. I don't think people have realised this, but we've never had all five main parties uh, standing in, in common cause. And even the traditional unionist voice, which is more UKIP-y than UKIP, and they they too are saying the same thing. Um, unfortunately for Boris Johnson, it's all in opposition to, to his government and, and the approach they've taken to the withdrawal agreement. Uh, but it is worth noting, and I think longer term, if we're thinking about the interests of the UK, even aside from Brexit, um, what is the UK? What what would really what really is a long term ambition for the UK as a as a country? Um, it's worth noting these things that actually there are genuine concerns that have not just economic consequences but political ones and maybe having just got the Northern Ireland Assembly and Executive up and running again which is fantastic to see um, why then ignore it um, quite so bluntly when it comes to the withdrawal agreement Overall, what should we be looking out for in, in, in 2020? You know, Given all the issues you've just talked about what are going to be the the giveaways that what you said is coming true you know, one way or the other, because obviously there are a number of branching histories, mm. as Dominic Cummings would have it, uh, reaching out in front of us. So what should we be, what are the pointers that we should be looking out for? Well, the UK's got until June to decide, uh, July, to decide whether to extend the transition period. There's no sign that that's going to happen, but that increases the risk that by the end of 2020, we end up with no trade deal at all. Uh, it's in, from the point of view of manufacturing and goods, the big issues coming up are around tariffs, whether there's a, a, a trade deal that eliminates tariffs, how things pan out in terms of the fact we'll be outside the customs union, so is there some sort of customs facilitation to try and smooth the flow of components coming through, and whether or not there's that word regulatory alignment for manufacturing so that you've got the same sort of product standards so things can go backwards and forwards easily and companies don't face big costs in getting stuff certified. So a whole load of stuff coming up. I mean, the the words we're going to see more of are things like rules of origin because if we have a free trade agreement, cars that are made here won't qualify unless 57% of the components come from the UK. Now, we're way off that figure. So we might need something called a accumulation agreement where we add up the stuff coming from the UK and the EU together to then come up with this 57% figure. So, you know, there are those kind of issues coming up. Rules of origin, local content, whether we'll actually qualify for a free trade agreement, even if there is one. Why not just set up a British car company? Start building British Trabants? Well, we did that. That was called the Austin Allegro. Yeah. Um, Now, you know, the, 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 the domestically owned industry disappeared for all sorts of reasons, including the fact that we opened up very quickly in the early 70s and everybody attacked the UK market along with trade union issues, short-termism. So 
we we don't tend to do domestically owned manufacturing very well it's mainly foreign owned and there is part of the issue here in the sense that if we through the whatever trade deal we come up with we put in place trade barriers with the biggest market for say british made cars these are foreign owned companies they can decide to go somewhere else so you know that how we keep the uk an attractive place beyond 2020 is going to be a big issue there's also a broader point of where do we want to go? What sort of industrial policy do we want? What manufacturing mm. do we want in the UK? How do we want it to link to services? So there are these sort of broader issues beyond just getting a deal done. I mean, is that a genuinely uh, sort of genuine Brexit outcome in that you're looking at it through the wrong end of the telescope? We don't want to be attractive to everybody else. I'm going to make set up my British car company and sell my British cars and I'll make a fortune. It'll be brilliant. Well, there was a, a, a saying before Elon Musk came along that it's impossible to set up a new car company and compete with the big boys and they still say that even though tesla is still there so the car industry requires huge sunk costs you've got to have a huge amount of capital to get into that industry and that's not something the financial system in the uk tends to support very well what are you looking out for sarah what, what's going to be the point at which you're going to go ah i can begin to see how this is going to play out now so financial services are really interesting here because um the aspiration is to conclude um, assessments on these equivalence agreements by the middle of this year. So we'll get an early indication really between March and June of the appetite for going for equivalence from the UK, the areas in which equivalence is being sought and how the EU is going to handle this. So I think the next six months are actually really important in terms of um, getting an early insight into possible landing zones around financial services. What's the, the, the phrase that you're looking out for this year? We've had rules of well, rules of rules of origin. Of origin, that's right. So what's that? R O O. Yes. Is that what they call yeah. it? Because you know, there's all gonna be these right. weirdy um, acronyms, isn't there? What's the one in, in financial services we should be looking out for? What the phrase in is? financial services it is equivalence. Equivalence so, is the big word. Um, what is the appetite for equivalence on the UK side? Right. What does the EU want to grant in terms of equivalence? And can equivalence be reproduced in different ways? So we've seen variations of equivalence, things like super equivalence, for example, oh, no. where you um, super equivalence would be a request whereby this revocation within 30 days is extended, so you can't withdraw it so quickly, or that you try and write in a process whereby there's some right of appeal if equivalence is revoked. So equivalence would be the word for financial services. That's a not super equivalence. That's not a thing. You're either equivalent or you're not. You can't be super equivalent, can you? No, that's the... But then, you know, this whole process has brought all sorts of interesting turns in the language. Um, any phrase we should be looking out for in terms of Northern Ireland, Katie? Um, unfettered is a big one. Uh, what does that of... mean? So un... Hopefully you know what unfettered means. Well, I know what it means. I know what it means. But in terms of Brexit, obviously, it's like you know these words you think start taking weird, weird turns. Actually, so the in the Northern Ireland Protocol, essentially, the UK has promised Northern Ireland unfettered access from Northern Ireland into Great Britain, and of course, Northern Ireland would like to see it come the other way as well. What they were worried about is that nobody really knows what unfettered means. So you make a good point, actually. Ah. And what the Northern Ireland businesses would like to do is sort of set out, well, well by that we mean, for example, no paperwork. We don't mean sort of being um, competitive, competitive disadvantage. Um, imagine I'm the EU and I'm sitting down with you and you're all representing your, your various sectors. Can we come to an agreement that's actually going to keep 
you all and me happy? I think there is scope for an agreement that that helps, for example, unlock investment in the current. So I still think the scope for a minimalistic trade deal this year, even with what Boris Johnson has been saying, uh, and whilst he's been saying he's not going to sign up to level playing field provisions, which you know things about the environment, labour standards, and state mm. aid. From from what I could see of what Barnier was saying yesterday, they're not going to insist on that being dynamic and changing over time. So as long as Johnson is willing to say, okay, we'll we'll kind of set things as they are, we'll agree to that, and there's some sort of agreement that could unlock a minimal trade deal, that might be enough to avoid tariff barriers, for example. So it, then it's a question of what you can add on to that in order to make sure there aren't other frictions in trade between the UK and the EU. You're all experts. Um and obviously, you have to think about the potential problems and things that have to be dealt with this year. But me, an idiot, is it all just going to be all right? What are the chances that this time next year I'll be sitting in my house going, oh, nothing's really changed? There are some big decisions to be made this year about our future trading relationship with the EU. Whether we end up at the end of 2020 and we face tariff barriers for certain industries, which will have a big impact on some industries like automotive, and some of the manufacturing sectors, or whether there is a trade deal done and they can be avoided. There's also issues about customs delays and regulatory alignment that could have quite a big impact on certain industries. So West Midlands, where I live, look at aerospace, automotive, train making, 50,000 jobs depend on those, those sectors. You know, Depending on what happens at the end of this year, there could be quite a big local impact. And these are parts of the country where Tories have won seats in the last right. election. So, you know, the, are they going to listen to what manufacturers here are saying? Uh, to what extent MPs are then going to sort of respond to that in Parliament? There's going to be some interesting dynamic, I think, emerging in Parliament about these new seats that the Tories have won. And if they aren't going to listen to manufacturing and there is going to be this negative impact, what are they going to do instead? Are they going to start spending more infrastructure mm-hmm. on public services in an attempt to keep those seats? So I think there's a lot that potentially could change and some interesting political dynamic that could emerge. And I think one of the key things is that some of those changes will be quite gradual mm. and have already started. And so that's really important economically in terms of how we experience it in our everyday lives, but also politically, because um, if you don't have a big kind of event where mm. um, London's financial market suddenly collapses, then the sort of ability to marshal um, political decisions around that is quite different. So I think the kind of gradual process of change that we've already seen in terms of financial services is really important to think about what that means both economically and what it means politically. Um, I mean, yeah, you're, you're talking about, I mean, I've got a car and I don't live in the West Midlands, so whatever. But no, actually, presumably something bad happens to the car industry in West Midlands. Um, that is the trigger for economic downturn in a big way, right? I mean, that's that's what will affect, you know, me in London or somebody sitting in Northern Ireland or Scotland or Newcastle or whatever. Um, it's when these sectors, if they get badly affected, then we're talking about a, a broader economic downturn. Is that yes, that's what right. we're so talking about, really? Economic shocks, which could play out in different places in different ways, as we've been hearing. But also, you know, if we end up with no trade deal at the end of this year and it's 10% tariffs on cars, cars become more expensive. So we will notice that, and we'll probably have less choice about what we can buy as well. So you know, there's going to be an impact on industries, places, but also probably consumers in terms of the choice that we face in terms of cars and how expensive they are. I'm going to go and set up my British car factory. <laughs> have it up and running in 12 months' time. I'll be loaded. It'll be amazing. On a, on a scale of 
positive to negative, zero to a hundred, how, how positive or negative are we feeling about what's to come in the next year? There's so much to juggle. Really, it's an extraordinary challenge. And one thing that's very curious is quite how much the, almost the government is wanting to make things even more challenging for itself by setting such a you know tight deadline for you know having no extension, for example, and also wanting to negotiate with the US at the same time as the EU and goodness knows where else. So that's on an international scale, that's extraordinarily challenging. And then domestically, the consequences of Brexit and indeed the consequences for the union itself. I mean, it's an awful lot to take on. In the unlikely event, this podcast has not enlightened you sufficiently. What would you recommend to understand? Uh, well, you know, Brexit's not a word anymore, but for, for the purposes of this uh, feature, we're still using it. Uh, what would you recommend to understand Brexit? Let's go, David, first. Um, there's a, a piece in this issue of New Statesman by Anoush Chakelian. Brexit isn't done. What next for the UK car industry? And it's a, <coughs> a great short introduction to some of these issues around tariffs, customs, regulatory alignment in the car industry. It's a great starting point. Sarah, what would you recommend? I would recommend following regional journalism. So there's been quite a lot written about how um, regional journalism and regional newspapers in particular are in decline. But actually, I think they're a really important source to understand the causes of the Brexit vote in terms of what was going on on the ground in different towns and cities across the UK, what the main issues are that those communities are grappling with now, and then you can reflect on how that intersects or not with Brexit. So I'm thinking of things like the Yorkshire Post, Manchester Evening News, the Evening Chronicle in Newcastle, for example. And in Nottingham? The Nottingham Evening Post. Is there still a local newspaper in Nottingham? I was worried there. Um, Katie, what have you got this time? So last time I re- recommended the book by Border Irish. Yes. Um, and Border Irish no longer exists as a Twitter oh, account. Oh, really? No, um, the, the account closed on Brexit Day, oh. appropriately enough. Uh, so I will make other recommendations in terms of who to follow for Twitter. Okay, okay. yeah, yeah, yeah. So you probably all follow um, Sam Lowe and David Hennig, but also Pauline Bastidon um, and Anna Jeruska. Um, and also a couple from Northern Ireland, um, Aidan Connolly um, is a, a good one to follow, and um, Stephen Kelly of Manufacturing and I. Aidan Connolly works for Northern Ireland Retail Consortium. Okay. Um, uh, just because they are still keeping going, <laughs> um, yeah. and so very alert to all the consequences of um, these next negotiations, not just for Northern Ireland, but of course for the whole of the UK. Mm. Right, listen, I'm not going to lie to you, I am a Katie Haywood fanboy, uh, as you may have uh, picked up from last time she was on the podcast. Uh, but one of the many things I love about her is the way she sighs at my uh, stupid questions as I try to boil down the complexities of Brexit to something understandable. And it is something I intend to keep doing for the foreseeable future, uh, to try and understand this massive thing that we are now all launched upon. Britain has Brexited, but as is clear from the What's Next report, there is still an awful lot to consider, an awful lot of work to do, as those three experts explained. If you have uh, any questions about what happens next, then uh, get in touch and we'll try to answer it on this podcast. If you have any ideas for guests you think we should have on to explain what's going to happen over the next uh, 11 months and beyond, then again, get in touch. Uh, you can find uh, UK and a Change in Europe online. They are uh, www.ukandeu.ac.uk and the email address is UK and EU 
at kcl.ac.uk. Uh, you'll find me on Twitter. I am at Political Yeti. And my website, james-miller.com, has all, nearly all, I've got to update it, all of the recommendations that our various guests have made over the last uh, two and a bit years. The music this week has again been the Requiem for a Fish by the Freak Fandango Orchestra. And this has been the Brexit Breakdown podcast from the UK and a Changing Europe, supported by King's College London, funded and supported by the Economic and Social Research Council. Come back next time for another episode. Uh, it should be a really interesting one next. I know who I've, I've seen the guest list and uh, trust me, it will be very much worth uh, subscribing to so you don't miss it. Uh, I look forward to that. Come back and listen then. Thanks. Bye.